Well, the scripture reading for us today as we continue in our series on parables through uh, the Gospel of Matthew is from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. But let's now hear the word of God for the people of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to him, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever uttered the phrase, I'm in a fog? I don't mean like a literal fog. You might have been in a fog before, but we're talking about a life fog, you might say. I'm in a fog. I don't know if I've ever said that, I can't remember, but I vividly remember a young man I was counseling, he was a Christian man, uh, struggling in life, who kept saying to me, I'm in a fog. I, it's like I can't see what's in front of me, I can't see what's beneath my feet, I don't know what's going on around me, I just can't make sense of the world, what's important, what's true, what's right, how do I value what I should value, how do I act, he was struggling just with kind of depression about, do I even need to act to do anything? I feel like every day is a struggle. There's not clarity. It was another way that he talked about it. It's hard to know how to make decisions to order my priorities. If you feel that way, I think you're in good company in our nation because many people describe their life like that, that they're in a fog. Um, and you might say that's true for not just our age, but the age in which Jesus gave these parables. How are we to act? What are we to do? How is God's kingdom going to come? How is his promises going to come? We might ask us, what can give us orientation, like in a fog? How can we know where's what? What's most valuable so that we can act on that? What we have before us today is a series of four short parables from the lips of our Savior. They might seem a bit disconnected. They're kind of right after one another. But I think what we'll find at the heart of all of these parables today is that they're about hidden things being revealed, uh, sort of the fog blowing away, things coming to light, surprising discoveries, clarity for action. That's what we have to have to act, isn't it? We need clear sense of, like, this is what I need to do this is what's valuable, and I can give myself to this. And these are what the parables let us know. 
They give us clarity for the fog. Well, let's remind ourselves where we are in this passage. We've been going through these Matthew parables. Uh, Our Lord Jesus came to his own people, and he came preaching a gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus didn't start with riddles and parables. It's actually good to know that, that you think, why did Jesus come doing these kinds of riddles? Well, he says he didn't come speaking first in riddles and parables. He spoke very openly. Uh, He spoke very clearly about the, the kingdom of God, but he immediately faced opposition, particularly opposition from the religious leadership who saw him as a threat. So it says Jesus began to speak in parables. It's a kind of judgment, particularly on those who were seeking to test him, to trap him. So what he's doing is he's requiring more out of his listeners to draw closer, to think about the meaning, to ask, what does this mean? How does this work? The analogy that I've often used for parables is why, as a teacher, I don't give study guides. So many teachers like to give Actually, as a student, I think I liked study guides because it's like, you know exactly what's on the test. There it is. That's all I need to study. Now that I'm on the other side of it as a teacher, I think study guides are not very helpful because students say, that's all I need to study. I can sort of clear out the rest. It doesn't require you to have a lot of effort to go back and look at the notes, think about what was most important in class. Well, Jesus here isn't giving us a study guide. He's wanting us to press in. Think about what he's saying. Ask about what's most important. These four parables today uh, conclude a kind of section of parables. It's sometimes called Jesus' day of parables. Whether this was all given on one day or not, it's not clear. But this is a section in which there's lots of parables that we're looking at, and these concluded here. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus actually doesn't speak in parables that much again until later, particularly at the very end of his ministry, the very last week of his life. So today is kind of a concluding point. And because of that, uh, this concluding point, I actually thought I'd start with the final parable in our passage first. So if you're looking at the outline, you can see I tried to make sure that that was highlighted and clear. And we're not going to go in exact order. We're going to start with the very last parable. It's the last parable in this whole section, this whole day of parables, because I think it's really important. The first three parables bear some resemblance to some of the earlier parables we looked at. The first two are very similar to each other. Uh, This hidden treasure, this pearl of great price. Uh, They're similar in some ways to the mustard seed parable we've heard, the, the parable of the leaven. The third parable, this parable of the net, is similar in some ways to the parable of the weeds and the wheat and tares. Uh, But if you look at verse 51, it starts with a question of Jesus. So he's given all these parables and he says, have you understood all of these things? This is probably a question not just about the most previous parable, but all of these parables we've been looking at. It's a kind of conclusion. Uh, It seems like Jesus is with his disciples only. And we have parts where Jesus is giving disciples to the crowd, parts where he's explaining parables to his disciples. This seems to be a moment in which he's just with his disciples. He turns to them and he says, have you understood all of these things? We might think that the, uh, the answer <laughs> that the disciples give is a little overstated. They say, well, yes, we have understood all of these things. And if you know the Gospels, you know the disciples have a whole lot more learning to do. They don't quite understand everything exactly, but we can in one sense take them at their word. Why? Because Jesus responds with, therefore. 
They, he says, have you understood these things? And they say, yeah, we have. And he says, well, therefore, what's the word because, because you have understood these things, here's what you are like. See, this parable here, this last one, isn't a parable about the kingdom specifically, the nature of the kingdom. It's about people living in the kingdom. You might say even about leading in the kingdom. What does it look like when you're in the kingdom and you're living in the kingdom and you're leading in the kingdom? Really, we might say it's a parable about the result of understanding the other parables. If you understand the kingdom, if you understand what Christ's kingdom is from these other parables, here's what you are like. He says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is kind of a summary of the parables, understanding them. So it's important, but what does it mean? (laughs) Well, it connects to what Jesus has been doing already in his ministry. See, the key thing about this is when Jesus came to Israel, he started acting in new ways. A few chapters earlier, it was said of Jesus, you might remember this statement, that the people were astonished at his teaching and his works. And you might ask, why were they astonished? It says this, because he speaks with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, if you know this, the scribes and the Pharisees were always talking about, well, do you take Rabbi so-and-so's view or do you take Rabbi other so-and-so's view about this? And Jesus comes and he just says, it's like this. He doesn't really appeal to anybody else. He doesn't rehash the old traditions. He comes saying things like this, like he says in the Gospel of Matthew. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you this. Pretty clear. Jesus is speaking about a new time as well. He says things like this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. In fact, the word gospel, as you might know, just means news. And the key thing about news is that It's new. It's something happening that's new. It's a new event. The Pharisees come to Jesus saying things like this. Why do your disciples not follow the traditions of our elders? In fact, Jesus says things like this. One greater than Solomon is here. One greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than the temple is here. See, Jesus is doing some startling things in Israel. He's retelling the old story of God's people. He's still talking about the old things, but he's doing it in surprising ways. And if you want to think about the parables, that's probably the easiest way to think about the parables. Jesus is taking old familiar images, seeds and sowing and bread and all of those things that are there in the Old Testament, but it's kind of like the ending is different. It's like if you were to hear a fairy tale Goldilocks or something like this, and you think, that wasn't the ending that I remember growing up. Well, Jesus is doing that. He's telling the old stories, but the endings are different. See, the parable tells us that God's inbreaking kingdom, this reign of heaven coming to earth, is bringing new and old treasures. In other words, Jesus is doing new things, but he doesn't actually think it's a conflict with the old. Jesus is teaching everything that God had promised of old, but it's coming to bear in new ways. It's being fulfilled in new ways. Remember another metaphor Jesus used? He says, no one sews a new piece of cloth onto an old one. If you do that, the new patch tears away 
and the worst, a worse tear is made in the old. No, he says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins, because the skins will burst. Both, he says, the new wine and the old wineskins are ruined. New wine for new wineskins. But listen to how he even ended that statement. He says, but if the new wine goes into new wineskins, both are preserved. It's a sense of the disciples are getting the new, but it's not that the old goes out, but the old actually comes in. You're getting treasures new and old, and they're being trained for a new covenant out of the old. In fact, the word trained here is actually just the word discipled. So they're being discipled into the kingdom. And the 12 apostles really are, in a sense, scribes, because many of them are going to write the New Testament. The scribe, a scribe literally just means a writer. But in another sense, a scribe can also just mean a learner. The ancients described educated people as a learned person, as a man of letters. Maybe you've heard that phrase, someone who's a man of letters, a man of the writings. So that is, think about it this way, if you are being discipled for the kingdom, in some sense you are a a scribe, a student, a learner of the writings, of the scriptures. A learned person being discipled into the kingdom is like a master of a house, Jesus says. Not like a slave or a servant. You can think of Jesus' words at the Last Supper when he says, No longer do I call you servants. I call you now friends because you share in the master's plans. The twelve are pillars in God's house, his people, and their teaching is going to pull out treasures new and old. But all of disciples of Jesus need to do this, so don't think you're off the hook. In some sense, they're going to be made valuable in the kingdom of God's house to learn to pull out these treasures. But notice the order there that's kind of interesting. It says new and old. What do, when we normally talk, we usually say treasures, old and new. So in the other words, new is the newer thing you say. It's kind of reversed here. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you know, in order to pull out the old treasures, you actually have to understand the new treasure. And actually to understand the old covenant. It's kind of like the old covenant is shrouded, is hidden in some sense. You have to embrace the new, and when you embrace the new, wow, suddenly the old lights up. You see the fulfillment of the old when you understand its fulfillment in the new. Only then can both be preserved. There's kind of a funny paradox like this in the New Testament when you pull open uh, the writings of the apostles. Paul says things like this, that when Christ fulfills the law, And when the Gentiles come in, which seems kind of against the law, Paul says, do we nullify the law? He says, no, we uphold the law. When we confess the coming of the Son, we get the Father also. But then says this, if you deny the coming of the Son, you don't have the Father even. This is why the parables of Jesus do this. They train us in the kingdom to bring out these treasures new and old. They're parables about the mysteries of the kingdom, mysteries that were shrouded in some sense. They were there in the old covenant, but now are being brought to light in Christ. See, the parables, the parables aren't just timeless 
pieces of advice. I often thought of the parables like that growing up. The parables, the, the lesson of the parables aren't like Aesop's fables in which it's like, okay, just do this generic truth. God is good or God forgives. The parables assume all of those good truths, but the parables are about what Jesus is doing right then and there. The parables, you might say, are the effect of his new work, his coming. The parables tell the story where Jesus is the key that changes the story. That's the climax, the surprise ending. In one sense, you might say Jesus isn't giving information as much as he's wanting you to reimagine the world with him at the center. He's giving us a picture of reality, and he's inviting us to live in that reality, bringing out treasures new and old is what happens when people push closer to Jesus and ask, what does this mean? How do I see this? But to understand this treasure language in this last parable, we actually have to step back now to kind of figure out that was about all of the parables. Jesus has actually introduced this idea of treasure earlier. Where does this treasure come in? See, if Jesus is doing something new, something explosive in Israel, bringing the old to a climax, that means there's a decision to be made. A new message needs a new response. And Jesus' call isn't like something that you might say, well, I'll explore when I have some time to do so. When I got some time to spare, well, then I'll, I'll check it out. Jesus is basically saying, no, it's now. Understanding Jesus' message is like discovering a treasure. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. The next parable is very similar. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of tremendous value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, what these parables do in Jesus' own day is kind of cut across the idea that Jesus' message is like one message among others. It's kind of like Jesus' message is just one other pearl that you can kind of string to make a nice pearl necklace. This is popular, of course, in our day as we can kind of collect Jesus as another nice teacher alongside of my other favorite teachers. You can't do that here. In fact, in these parables, the whole point is that there's one great pearl, there's one hoard of treasure that's like nothing else, and in fact, nothing else is like it. It's worth selling everything for it. This is the shock. This is the announcement that Jesus is saying. You've got to put everything aside. It's all here on the line. It's all the more urgent even by the next parable that we look at, that there's going to be a time of reckoning. It's a time that's actually going to reveal what choice you have made. And it's coming closer. The world isn't simply going round in circles like they thought in the ancient world. It's going to a straight line. It's coming to a close, and you need to figure things out now. But let's look more at these parables of these hidden values revealed, these valuables. There's an obvious commonality between the two, but there's some interesting differences. Look with me. The treasure in this first parable uh, comes as an unexpected surprise. This guy is not looking for it. And the second one, the merchant's out there searching. In fact, it's sort of a, an emphasis on that, searching, searching for these pearls. See, the kingdom is, in one sense, both what you find and somehow the finding itself or the one who finds it. The kingdom is what people find, 
And the kingdom is also what people become when they find it. The kingdom is a people gathered around a king. Here's another difference. This first valuable is found in the land. And the second valuable is a pearl. Where do you find a pearl? Well, a pearl comes from the sea. In Scripture, there's often an association in the Old Testament with Israel, with the land, and the Gentiles, the nations, they're kind of like the sea that roars up, and it's always threatening to overthrow and overbound Israel as the land. So some in church history have looked at these parables and often have suggested maybe these two parables describe the different ways the kingdom comes to Jews and to Gentiles. See, Israel stumbles across the treasure that's already in their land. It's in plain sight. It's right there in front of them. But the Gentiles, in a sense, come to the kingdom after a long, fruitless search. They've been searching the depths of the sea, you might say, like the pearls, and the kingdom comes. Well, I think that's certainly possible. But either way, it reminds us that the kingdom comes to people in different ways. This is often a good reminder to us as Christians when we think about our own testimony. Uh, Sometimes God sets people on long searches that takes a while. That's their ultimate coming to the kingdom. For others, it's quite immediate, and it's almost like, I just stumbled upon it. Here it was. There's the kingdom. Looking at the next parable, we might say, either way, everyone is gathered into the kingdom. They're netted into the kingdom, but it comes in different ways. There are some other details uh, worth exploring in these short lines. It's interesting that the man who finds this treasure, once he finds it, that's not the end of the parable, he hides it in the same field, Then he arranges to purchase the field itself to gain the treasure. What does that mean? That means he found this treasure not in his own field, but in someone else's field. And instead of informing the rightful owner, hey, you've got a treasure on your land. I just wanted to let you know that. It says he offers to buy the field apparently without that information. It's kind of like finding an oil reserve on someone else's land, and it's kind of like before they can do the geological survey, let me buy that piece of property for you. I know it's, it's, it's uh, property is not worth anything, so I'll just give you this. It seems like this guy kind of lowballs, uh, pays less for the field uh, than he would have if the owner knew that there was a treasure lying on his field. It might strike us as dishonest, but surprising, a number, number of Jesus' parables uh, speak this way. Jesus tells a parable of a dishonest servant who steals from his former employer to gain access to someone else's service when he's cast out of his former employer. And Jesus commends this servant's shrewdness in the kingdom, especially because they understand the times. Maybe Jesus' parable here uh, presumes that the seller is somehow responsible for knowing the value of what he sells, or it's not the purchaser's responsibility to explain the price. Maybe it should be higher after all, maybe. But I think there's more to it than this, and it's actually quite similar to that other parable of the dishonest servant. See, these are parables of Jesus' ministry in Israel, and they're especially a response to Jesus' opposition, opposition to him. So you might say the story isn't just a story of the hidden value of the kingdom, it's that. But it's the story, kind of implicitly, about an owner who doesn't know the value of what he has in the land right there in front of him. Does that sound familiar? Right there, there's the treasure. It's in your own land. That can make even more sense 
of Jesus' own situation. It actually foreshadows another parable that we'll look at, I think, in this series, the parable of the vineyard tenants. Their tenancy is going to be taken away. It's going to be given to another. The kingdom will be taken away from you and given to others who will produce it. These religious leaders in Israel are sitting on treasure. It's the treasure of the kingdom. But actually, it's the faithful, sort of the the common people in Israel, those who believe Jesus, who are following him, they have to do whatever it takes to gain the field, gain the land, and prove themselves sons of Jacob after all, gain this treasure. They're shrewd servants. They're working for a new master. Well, the parable of the pearl of great value doesn't have this same level of strategery. doesn't have to a strategic way to gain this, but the parables both describe the coming of the kingdom as somehow subverting normal behavior. These guys don't act in normal ways when they find these things. In both stories, men, these men act in the extreme. The merchant with the pearl isn't really actually a good entrepreneur, if you think about it. For any real business people, you guys know business guys among you, uh, no purchase is really a final purchase. You buy in order to sell, and you sell in order to buy, so you can sell again, and you can make a profit with all of these buying and selling. But this merchant who finds this pearl, what's he going to do with this pearl once he gets it? Is there a hint in this that he's going to sell it for some other? No, he's found the pearl of great price. It's the pearl. He's just going to sit on this pearl. This is a final purchase for this merchant. He was done in his search. See, this pearl, this value of this pearl isn't really what you do with it. It's not kind of an economic value. That's the value of the kingdom, because it's the value of the king himself. It's interesting in the text, it says the merchant is in search of fine pearls. That word fine means beautiful. So why does he want these pearls? Is it for the economic value? He just wants a beautiful pearl. And the word even for great value, this pearl of great value, is the word precious. He finds a precious pearl. Now, you can use precious to talk about economic value, but many of us talk about precious things as simply, I just value it because it's mine and because there's value in it. See, purchasing the kingdom isn't that you actually purchase it, it's that you embrace it, you commit yourself for it, you've gained something of value. Jesus is saying the proper response to his kingdom, his reign that's in the world now, is you throw off everything for it. Jesus' saving rule is of such value, you can throw off normal human calculations. You don't save up for these things. You just act. It looks rash. It looks a little irrational. You give up everything because in the end, you're actually receiving something of greatest value. Jesus said it. If you seek first the kingdom, God's going to supply everything else that you need. Beloved, the demand of the kingdom is radical in these passages, but it's not a call to do something out of a grim sense of duty. Enjoy the man sold all that he had to gain the greatest treasure of his life. These men in these parables act in a frenzy of delight because in some sense these hidden things that they really were wanting all along in their life, even if they didn't know it, they have found it. They found their heart's desire. We've come about it in a roundabout way, but this brings us to the final parable. It's the third parable, the parable of the dragnet. 
verse 47. As I mentioned, this actually gives us, in a sense, more urgency to Jesus' call in these other parables. It's to act urgently for the kingdom. The kingdom is not only a valuable for yourself, but it's a gathering up of history. See, history is sweeping a certain direction, and the sweeping of it is a point of decision, a point of separation. Things are going to be revealed where you were, which side you were on, where you have made your, he- your heart's treasure, your decisions. And as with the other parables, I actually take this as speaking about something that's happening right there in Jesus' own day. The parables are a response to Jesus' work, and in some ways, they actually enact the very things that Jesus is talking about. See, Jesus tells us stories about different responses, and the response to the story about different responses leads to different responses. And Jesus is going to speak about a net gathering all kinds of fish, but there's a separation between the two. And it's this response to his parables separates. People in Israel are separating over, over Jesus. Are you with him or are you not? And Jesus is doing this in the parable. Jesus has already called his disciples what? Fishers of men. By the way, that tells you the kind of fishing is not kind of cane fishing. It's grab a net and sweep everything into it so that you can see and pick out from it. It's worth reminding us, too, that the word angel in Scripture is simply the word messenger. John the Baptist has already been called a messenger. He's the angel of the covenant that was promised by Malachi in Malachi 3. It was John's role that was prophesied about him, that the day would be coming, burning like an oven, when all the evildoers would stubble, become stubble. John preached that the time was near. The axe is already at the root. Every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be what? Thrown into the fire. A couple chapters earlier in Matthew, Jesus sends out his disciples in Israel as messengers and tells them what? He says, your going out is going to cause a division in Israel of who accepts you and who doesn't, and that's going to be about who accepts me. Remember, Jesus says the parables are spoken to confirm what was said about Israel. And so it makes sense that when the writer of Hebrews later is probably reflecting on these things, he actually describes Jesus' first coming with the exact same phrase from this passage. The writer of Hebrews says, At the culmination of the age, at the close of the age, he appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself. See, what's being talked about here is the close of an era, a close of an age, the old covenant age. Jesus is bringing that to a close and inaugurating something new, his reign in the new covenant era. Now, we can talk about how this process didn't fully end. It's continued. Does Jesus still continue to separate things? Do people separate over how they decide on Christ? And is there going to be an ultimate separation that's going to reveal everything? Is there a day of reckoning? There is. Verse 49 actually reminds us of kind of that same theme of hiddenness of all of these parables. Appearances can be deceiving. It seems like the net has swept up all this fish. That's great. But now there's going to be a separation. And the separation of evil actually literally says, from the midst of the righteous. It's kind of like they're hidden in there, like the wheat and the tares, just like that parable. There's an intermingling, but it's not going to last forever. Things are ultimately going to be revealed. The fog is going to be blown away entirely. And the idea then is not that, okay, that's the time for decision. The decision is now. It's that that's going to show where your decisions were. Your life decisions are leading you one way 
or another. And Jesus says, ultimately, everything is going to be revealed. All the buried things that you thought you could bury, buried sin, you might say, it's going to be dug up. All the precious pearls are going to be found. All the things are going to be set right. But there's a patient mercy in this. We might make the wrong assumption from these other parables uh, that the kingdom is only for those who act in extraordinary ways to find and acquire. Maybe it's only for a select few. Maybe only a few get it. No, the kingdom actually collects all kinds. It's interesting that the word fish is not actually in this parable anywhere. I kept looking for it, and it's not there. You actually have to supply it. I mean, it's implicit. What would you normally catch in a net? Fish. But it actually just says the net gathered all kinds. All kinds of what? All kinds of anything. It sweeps it up. Every kind of person can be gathered into the kingdom. But there's ultimately a reckoning as well. Where was the ultimate decision? We can't see it, but everything will be revealed. There's going to be a testing of the value of those kinds. It's interesting that the idea of value and treasure, which is all in the other parables, shows up in this passage as well. The word to describe these different kinds that are collected in the net actually speak about value, not necessarily moral value. The fish that are kept are fine fish. It's actually the same word for the fine pearls. The fish that are kept are beautiful fish. I don't know. I don't really think fish are too beautiful, but wholesome, healthy, good fish, valuable. But the fish that are thrown away are worthless. They're not worth eating. They're spoiled. They're rotten, of no value. See, what happens is this. When people choose valuable things in their life, all those decisions, what happens that value, in a sense, kind of becomes part of They become valuable in the work of the kingdom. But if you make decisions that have no value, you're choosing things that have no value, it's almost like you become that way. Are we becoming people of value? See, the value of the king, the value of the kingdom, makes you valuable if you let it. In the context of Jesus' ministry here in Israel, these parables show us what God is doing in a veiled way. See, Jesus' ministry is the leaven that's being worked out through Israel. But it's a hiddenness that people have to seek out. And when you find it, you abandon everything for it. Jesus is saying, you've got to do it now. It means, for them, abandoning the official leadership. Don't follow their way of thinking the kingdom's going to come this way. Embrace my work of the kingdom. It is a true fulfillment of the old promises, even though it's new. It's surprising. But these parables challenge us today, too. They challenge us in our thinking and action. I've been reflecting on that. These parables have to do with understanding something, thinking, but also acting on it. So trying to gain wisdom, sort of, can I understand everything but without acting, is ending up worthless. But trying to act without understanding is useless, too. It's kind of paradoxical in this passage that if you want to understand something about Jesus, what do you have to do? You have to act. You just have to embrace him. And that understanding, in a sense, will come. But in order to, under, to, under, to act as well, you need to have something of what Jesus is doing. And he says, just press in. Trust, and I will show out what I have, these treasures, new and old. For today, we can ask ourselves these questions. Just think on these. What does it look like to discover the hidden value of Christ's kingdom today? What would it look like if you stumbled upon the greatest treasure in the world, and it's Christ? 
What does it mean to value him above everything? If we found that treasure, what does it look like to be made valuable somehow? Giving our value to this and being made valuable. What does it look like to be a a scribe, discipled in this kingdom, trained in this kingdom? That we can continue to find in God's word, old and new, treasures that we can share. It's interesting that parable says they bring out treasures, but we don't know what they do with those treasures. What do you do with treasures? You show them to other people. You share them in some sense. This passage is a reminder that if we see the value of the kingdom, we have to value him above everything else. See him as the most valuable. But the good news of this, beloved, is that when we see the king as valuable, we become valuable in the kingdom. We're being made valuable in the house of God. You know, there's a lot of things complicated in life. There's a lot of things that are kind of foggy about there. I get brain fog, too. I wouldn't want to downplay that. But there are some simple things, too, in life. And Jesus cuts through that, and he says, it might be unexpected, it might be hidden at first, but there's a treasure, and if you grab hold of it and give everything else for it, it is of supreme value. Beloved, grab that treasure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who reveals hidden things that reveals all mysteries in your Son, who holds all things together. We praise you, O God, that in Christ Jesus, your Son, you did a new work in his life and his death and resurrection and fulfilled all your promises of old. So cause us, Father, by your Spirit, to seek him as our treasure, seek him and his kingdom and all that we do, so that we might live worthy, valuable lives and so share this treasure with those around us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.